Thank you for that reading. Please make sure you've got, if you've got a Bible or a phone in front of you at home, please make sure you've got Ephesians 5 open. Um, Don't close it because we're going to be looking through that together. And uh, happy Father's Day, everybody. Um, I got delivered a cappuccino this morning, which I was very appreciative for because I've been up fairly early. Um, And I'm also looking forward to having something when I get back. Um, There's a great line, a very, very famous line that I'm sure you've heard before. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. It's a famous line from John F. Kennedy's uh, inaugural address, and he went on to say the words that are on your screen there. We shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe to assure the survival and success of liberty. Uh, That speech is one of history's uh, great inspiring speeches. The call to set aside your own self-interest for what is the good of the community. Now, sometimes we need a jolt, don't we, to remind ourselves that there are more important things going on in the world than our own convenience or preference or getting our own way. Um, For Kennedy, you see, the early 60s uh, had come after a decade of growing prosperity, but also it was a time where there was growing social need and tensions as well. And so that need to refocus was important. But for us Christians, there is a far more enduring and expansive vision. The calls of Christ and the growth of His kingdom. A movement from death to life, darkness to light, hostility to peace, falsehood to truth, sin to holiness. And this vision is to permeate far more than our political interests but every aspect and every relationship of our lives. It's not all about me. It's all about us and it's all about Him. Ephesians is a letter about Christ and His church. So from the beginning of the letter, we're reminded of God's great eternal purpose to have a a beloved people that are holy and blameless in His sight because they are united in His Son. So the great achievement of the gospel is bringing together in peace a fractured and divided humanity into a new humanity. Their sin taken away by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, their future guaranteed by God's own Spirit dwelling among them and empowering them that they might live this new life based on love and truth and righteousness and holiness and that they might grow together and be more like Jesus. This new redeemed community is what God displays, we're told in Ephesians, before the spiritual forces of the universe as a testimony to His glory. And so, because that is what God is doing with us and among us, that's got to be where our labours as a community are to be directed. We're not the old humanity, divided, wrong thinking, cut off from God, acting out our own sinful and selfish desires and thoughts. And we must not live like it. And that is what chapters 4 and 5 have been teaching us so far. You might remember from last week. You were once old, but now you are the new live like it. You were once darkness, you are now light, live like it. You were once ignorant of God, cut off from Him, now you know Him and live for Him. 
So selfishness moves into selflessness and deception gives way to truth and corruption is set aside and purity is moved into its place. Everything changes about the way we relate because now we are a people united in Christ and by His Spirit and our goal is to bring glory to God in all that we do. So, why am I giving you this lengthy contextual sort of stuff? Because this is the setting of the so-called household code from chapter 5, verses 22 to 6, verse 9. And this is the mentality that's got to govern the way we understand it. Our passage flows actually straight out of verses 15 to 20 of Ephesians 5. So look back onto those ones. Um, There's on your screen, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil and therefore do not be foolish but understand what the Lord's will is. And so we're called not to get drunk and indulge ourselves, verse 18. Instead, what we're commanded to do is be filled with the Spirit. That is, live out and express the work of the Spirit, the same Spirit that seals us as people belonging to Jesus and who unites us together. That's what we're to live out. And so there are five things that are expressions of this visible outflow, this fullness of the Spirit's filling of the Christian community. Um, Speaking to one another the praise of God, verse 19. Singing and making music to the Lord from the heart, verse 19. Giving thanks to God for everything in Christ, verse 20. This is the kind of stuff that a community filled by God's Spirit's going to do. It will just be the pattern of things as we interact with one another and express our unity with praise and joy and and thankfulness while we're seeking to put others' needs before our own. We're wanting to spur and encourage one another on. That's part of what that all does. But you'll notice that I said there were five expressions of this, being filled with the Spirit. Well, the fifth way we are to demonstrate the Spirit's filling is in verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is not a separate command. It is a continuation of the sentence that begins with the command way earlier to be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit-filled community also shows that by readily submitting to one another rather than seeking to rule over each other and to jockey for position. Because we recognise a higher order, the Lordship of Jesus Christ over all of us. And the nature of that leadership, humble service, that's who our Lord is, the humble servant. Now, submission is a critical word for us to understand as we consider the verses that follow. The word submit means to place yourself under the authority of someone. Notice that doesn't make them the authority, it is recognising their authority and letting them take the lead in the area of which they are the authority. So we submit to leaders, for instance, in multiple contexts in life. We all do it. And we submit to laws all the time. We submit, you know, even our own desires, we submit them to the governing of our wills. We must do that. So part of what it is to be wise and not unwise, 
Part of what it is to understand the Lord's will is to be ready for the sake of harmony in the body of Christ to place ourselves under the authority of those whom God has called into roles of authority in that body and amongst us. He's the one who's placed them there and so because we ultimately submit to him, we revere him, we will willingly submit ourselves to them. Now, before we look at the rest of this passage, and so that we can explore them more freely when we do, I want to make three important points right up front. And the first one is this. All Christians are to be selfless, but not all selflessness is submission. You see, some understand verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ, in in such a way that it, in effect, dissolves the distinctive instructions that follow. That is, we're told that we're all to submit mutually to one another, and so therefore that becomes the governing idea. So any command for one group to submit to the other must also, at times, be able to be reversed. So specifically, submit to one another means, well, that Christian husbands are also going to need to submit to their wives and parents to their children and slaves to their masters. This argument explicitly sees the put others first ethical teachings previously mentioned in chapters 4 and 5 as being actually examples of what mutual submission looks like. So anywhere you're exalting someone else, you're actually submitting yourself. But can I say this is actually an unhelpful blurring of categories. Just because some behaviour is selfless doesn't make it an act of submission. So, for instance, let me talk about what that means. Christ's humble, servant-hearted, sinner-redeeming, gracious and loving activity on behalf of the church was not him submitting to the church's authority but expressing, actually, his kingly rule over us in a servant way. Christ submits himself, he does, it's for our benefit, but it is not to us. He submits to his Father's will, you see? There's a difference. He's being selfless, but he's not submitting to the church. Yes, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ applies to the whole Christian community, but it is applied specifically to the various authority relationships that exist. There are a myriad of situations in life where someone has been given responsibility for something and some of those situations are temporary ones, some of those are more formalised and so when a person is carrying out that responsibility, well, we should all be willing to happily submit to them. Second, submission does not entail subjugation. Now, this needs to be heard very, very clearly. The call to submit is made to those who are to do the submitting, right? Not the ones being submitted to. It is the volitional recognition and honouring of another's authority by the one under that authority. So, one commentator puts it very helpfully... A command to submit does not constitute a reversed mandate for the other to subjugate. See, in the three pairs of relationships that follow, the responsibility on the reader 
is to heed and honour this instruction that is applicable to you, where you are, not to give orders to your counterpart in that relationship. It's actually a sad testimony to the corruptive impact of sin in this space that many have sought to use passages like this as tools of oppression and so have woefully, um, uh, culpably turned a blind eye to God's explicit commands to them and to his overall purposes for the Christian community. There is no space for lording it over people anywhere in these verses. And so let me be even more specific. For any husband who is abusive and controlling, for any such person to claim Ephesians 5 as a mandate for that, has completely ignored the even stronger command that he is given in this very passage to love in a Christ-like way. And Christ is never abusive and controlling. Third, submission relates to authority, but authority does not equal worth. Now, this is true in general, but it is particularly in God's eyes. And, and it is throughout the Bible very clear um, that someone has a leadership role or an authority role of some kind does not all of a sudden introduce inequality of value. It just doesn't. So do I all of a sudden become a lesser class of human being than Gladys Berejiklian just because I'm called to honour her as the Premier? When I submit to the authority of a policeman when they instruct me to put a mask on, have I just suddenly degraded myself? Not at all, of course not. Do, do I have to somehow exert my authority then over them in some other context in order to recover my dignity? No, I don't. Now, human sin can try to import worth into the equation in the form of maybe, on one hand, arrogance or pride, or on the other, jealousy and envy, but it is not inherently there. Men are no more important than women. Parents are no more important than their children. Bosses are no more important than their workers. All are equal in God's eyes and so should be in ours regardless of who's in authority and who isn't. So with all that being said, let's now let this great part of Scripture speak for itself. As we strive to establish a united, holy and loving community of believers working together and submitting to one another that we might honour Christ, Paul brings us to reflect on, on how being one in Christ must transform our relationships at home and, and be the distinctive of those relationships. The verses that follow have got three paired examples that were typical of households at the time, husbands and wives, parents and children and slaves and masters. Now, in each pairing... The one submitting is mentioned first, but each time the one in authority is also reminded to reflect upon the one who is always in authority over them. So we're going to have a look at each of those in turn, but I'm going to flag right now that for time reasons, uh, I won't be addressing the section on slaves and masters. So the first and longest section looks at the relationship between husbands and wives. 
And there are some significant differences worth noticing between this pairing and the later two. So first, unlike the other two, in this first pairing, the instruction to the husband is significantly longer than that given to the wife. Second, unlike for children and slaves, wives are never instructed to obey their husbands. And third, the instruction to wives to submit, while clear, is never actually put in the language of a command at all. There is actually no verb in verse 22. It follows on from the general command for all Christians um, to submit to one another out of reverence in Christ, but Christ in verse 21, by specifying wives to your own husbands. And likewise, in verse 24, it reads, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives to their husbands in everything. Now, what do we make of this? Well, it says straight away that in Paul's mind, the relationship between husbands and wives is not of the same nature as the other two relationships that he's going to talk about. For starters, both are adults and neither is slave to the other. And obedience is not inherently a part of the relationship as it is for the other two. Husbands and wives are complementary counterparts in a wonderful and significant union. That is the Bible's teaching on marriage. Husbands and wives are a team in a way that children and parents aren't and slaves and masters aren't. The marriage relationship may have authority within it, does have authority within it, but the marriage union itself has its own goal to which both husband and wife together are to make a profound contribution. So let's have a look at those contributions. First, let's have a look at wives, verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. It's a reminder, isn't it, that the prime relationship that any Christian wife has is actually with Jesus. Just as you readily and willingly place yourself under his authority, Paul says, place yourselves under your husbands. Now, we're not to miss those two words there either, your own husbands. This is deliberate and it is specific. So women in general are not being called to willingly submit themselves to men in general. Just the one man whom God has given responsibility for her, her husband. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now, in many ways, Paul is sowing the seed here for the instructions that he's going to be giving the husbands in the verses that follow. The church is Christ's beloved, the one that he gave himself to save. As Paul has made clear already in Ephesians, when he has used the word head of Christ, um, he is for the church our authority. That's what he means. He is also for our church, we've been shown in Ephesians, our, our source. He's, he is both our leader and our provider. Our fullness, Ephesians tells us, comes from him. So in the wife-husband relationship, the wife is encouraged to let her husband take that kind of Christ-like lead in the same ready spirit with which the church embraces Christ's headship. And that's what I think that in everything means there in verse 25. It's not 
everything in the exhaustive sense, that is submitting in every detail on every single occasion. But it's talking about in the broad, holistic sense, I guess, of in every respect. So you're not cherry-picking where you're going to permit him to lead. In everything describes a general stance of entrusting oneself to one's husband and encouraging him to lead in a Christ-like way. See, biblical submission is not subservience. It's proactive honouring. Because an important concept that sits behind all relationships authority, whatever they are, is accountability. You see it all the way through the Bible, even from the fall back in the garden. And that is that is the husband who is held to account by God for the decisions of the couple. And later in this passage, even though both fathers and mothers raise children, it's actually the father who is responsible for ensuring their children are raised as Christians and so will be held to account for that. So submission is lovingly letting the person who is accountable, in whatever context that might be, carry out their role the best they can. Now what does this look like in practice? Well, it certainly does not mean being a doormat. You can respectfully challenge, can't you? You can respectfully suggest. You can respectfully even rebuke people. I hope we do. You can respectfully question. In fact, if you have a concern at all for the success of the relationship and in achieving what the relationship's meant to achieve, you will inevitably do all of these things. And it's important for you to do so. But it is not honouring to undermine. And it is not submitting to continually challenge and question until you get your way. It is not honouring to humiliate, put down or mock your husband. It's about helping him, not resenting him. Well, what about the husband then? Well, ironically, the call for wives to submit is what tends to leap off the page for us. But it is these next verses, actually, that would have leapt off the page for Paul's original readers. For when it comes to husbands, he does not give a series of tips on how to keep your wife under control, like a good Greco-Roman or even Jewish patriarch properly running his home might. He continues the analogy he began with the wives and he brings the gospel front and centre. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There is a command here to husbands. It's a big, fat imperative, love your wives. And not just generically, but in a devastatingly specific way. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And Paul's Christian readers know what gave himself up for meant. And so do you, and so do I, so do I know that. It meant died, right? It meant being tortured. It meant being sacrificed, sacrificing his life on a cross for the church, for us. That 
is the love husbands are commanded to show their wives. And then he spells out the details of what Christ lovingly achieved for his church. Look at verse 26 and 27. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. Did you notice Christ's ambitious love for his people? You notice the attention he pays to the church's well-being, the diligence, the thoroughness, the tenderness, the joy and the glory that he has in doing this for his church. He spent himself completely for us. Well, if that is how Christ loved his body, the church, that is how husbands should love their wives, whose care has been entrusted to them. Verse 28, in this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. We are members of his body. Verse 28, again, is emphatic. This is an ought, an absolute obligation upon husbands that they love their wives and not in a bitsy, half-hearted, tokenistic way, but as attentively as they would tend their own bodies and as Christ does for his church, the body. Notice that the husbands, by the way, are not commanded to lead lest we foolishly get it in our heads that this relationship is about us giving orders. They're commanded, we're commanded to love. And that speaks volumes. Well, what does this mean in practice? Well, it's not about wives stepping out, it's about husbands stepping up and taking responsibility. It is a rebuke to the lazy, self-absorbed husband whose thinking and energy is focused on his work and his mates and his hobbies and his man cave and his wife just has to fit in with it while she keeps the home functioning. This is neglectful, indulgent and entitled And none of those things are as Christ loved the church. It is also a rebuke to the controlling self-absorbed husband. The husband who sees his wife as a tool in the building of his empire. It is her flourishing that should be your delight and goal. And you know what? If it costs you some shine that she might shine brighter... That's your job. Come to terms with it. Because that's as Christ loved the church. Christian authority means care and attentiveness. Husbands, you are responsible for looking to your wife's well-being, both physically and spiritually. How are you going at doing that? Do you ever ask her about these things? I hope you do, but do you? 
See, that's why husbands really need to work on being husbands. Whether you want to be or not, you are responsible and you will be accountable. So ask God for wisdom and learn from one another and learn from your wives. Look, there's a lot more than can be said here, but we don't have time. However, I should say that we will be running some marriage enrichment seminars next year. Uh, So that might be something that you might plan to be a part of. Um, Hopefully, they will be very, very helpful for us. You know, at the end of the day, for both husbands and wives, it is not my marriage, but our marriage. The union itself is the significant thing. And our concern should be for God's plan for that union, and it's a big one. Look at verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So this is what sets marriage apart. The oneness, the love, the submission, the selflessness, the partnership, the protection, the faithfulness of marriage is not ultimately about us. It is a pointer to the most profound union of all, our union in Christ. And that God's vision for marriage, that both husbands and wives are to work together to honour. That's what our project is. That's what we together in partnership live towards. Well, the last two pairs um, are significantly briefer, but for time reasons, as I mentioned earlier, we can't explore them both in a lot of depth. But I will say about children and parents, I will talk about that for a bit, but, but slaves and masters will need to be left to your growth groups this week. But, but notice that Christian parents and their children also need to have a Christ focused, body-growing, gospel-vision understanding of their role. Verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Unlike wives and husbands, the submission that children show to their parents does come with a command to obey. Kids, here's here's the thing. Because I told you is actually a good reason. Now, explaining their decisions is often what good parents are going to do because what they want you to do is they want you to grow in your understanding of things. They want you to learn about why something is good and to do and why it is not there to be done so that you might grow up and make good decisions. But it is not for children to demand an explanation or a justification by parents for what they are asking you to do. And unless what is being asked of you would be requiring you to sin against God, defying your parents is out of line. It doesn't, whether you want to do it or not is not the thing. God says, obey your parents. If you are a child who loves Jesus, you're going to honour your parents and you're going to obey their instructions. And you know what? Here's the thing. More often than not, 
because most parents truly do love their children and want what's best for them, obeying them is going to end up being for your benefit, that it might go well with you. As for parents, well, verse 4 is interesting. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Two things to notice here. First, as all of us know from our own childhoods, being told what to do when you don't always get why, having big decisions relating to your life made on your behalf by someone else, especially when you're not yet mature emotionally or know why it's going on, those things can actually be a hard pill for children to swallow. So parents, and we must notice, it is fathers in particular, we need to understand that. Another way of saying do not exasperate means don't provoke, do not enrage your children, do not make them angry. I think we need to be aware of the potential for our decisions to provoke resentment in our children. And while that doesn't mean relinquishing our authority to make decisions for them, and while it doesn't mean that we won't won't sometimes make hard decisions that we know they're not going to like, but because we are wiser and we know what's good, I think it does mean that we will take their feelings into account. We will respect them. And we will try to, I think, minister to them in the middle of that difficulty. But the bigger instruction here is the second aspect. Christian parents, and in particular Christian fathers, have the God-given task of bringing up children in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, churches help us to do that. Our children's ministry teams, our youth ministry teams help us to do that. But it is the parents' responsibility and accountability. This is more than passing on information too. The words used here describe the instilling of disciplines. It is, the, it is teaching the truths of the gospel and ensuring your children walk worthy of that gospel just like you're labouring to do. Where will they learn to honour God's word? Where will they learn to pray? Where will they learn to prize the fellowship of Christ's church? Where will they learn to seek first the kingdom of God? Where will they learn righteousness, wisdom, holiness, a graciousness? It has to be at home. It has to be at home. As parents, we hold on to the hope, don't we, that although our kids might complain at the time, in the end, they'll be grateful that we made them keep practising their musical instrument, that we got up and drove them to swimming at 5am, that we worked hard to send them to a good school and made them do their homework. We kind of hope that in the long term they'll go, I see what you were doing there and that was really important. But you know what? In eternity, 
It will not be the toys that you got them or the holidays that you took them on or the sporting or educational opportunities that you provided for them or the inheritance that you left them that our children will be thankful to God for us for. It will not even be a blip. It will be that we laboured to raise them knowing and living for Jesus and now they're standing beside us and in front of him. That is what really matters and that is what they will be eternally thankful to God for you for, not the other stuff. It won't matter. And it is this vision and seeing all whom we love all of our people we are in relationships with, standing there before Christ, that's what's going to move us to put others first, that vision. That's what's going to cause us to lead sacrificially. That's what's going to cause us to submit willingly and we will do it all for the glory of God. Amen.